0: Breaking overnight, undergrad students at Georgetown University have voted to add a small fee. I'm Denise Koch. Georgetown University students are considering a fee that benefits the descendants of enslaved people sold to pay off the school's debt.
1: Results overnight show students at Georgetown University support paying reparations to help atone for the school's past. Now, students are taking it one step
2: further.
0: Students at Georgetown University voting on whether they should be...
1: The Georgetown student vote made international news in 2019. But the university's history of owning enslaved people wasn't a new discovery. It wasn't a case of long-lost documents being brought to light. Instead, Matthew Quallen says it was a matter of timing, of the publication of some articles in the student newspaper, the emergence of Black Lives Matter, and the readiness of students to listen to a story that had always been there. Matthew Quallen was an undergraduate when he wrote a series of articles for the Georgetown Hoya, drawing heavily on the archives, that helped kick off the debate on campus. Welcome to another episode of Overdue. I'm Lena Mo, and I'm recording in New York City and online with my co-host Ty Jones. Today we talk to Matthew about some of the documents he discovered in the course of writing those articles. One was a letter sent from a plantation cabin on Florissant Farm outside St. Louis. The letter contained the request of an enslaved person to purchase his freedom. The Maryland Jesuits had sent him and his family to St. Louis to help found a university there. The man and his family were enslaved, and the letter originated. From virtually the same spot, 150 years later, a movement would arise following the killing of Michael Brown on Florissant Avenue. Matthew Quallen graduated from Yale Law this past spring and has studied how archives have undergirded recent, important legal decisions. In 2020, the Supreme Court ruled in McGirt v. Oklahoma that the historic treaties the U.S. government made with the Cherokee Nation were never invalidated, making a huge part of Oklahoma potentially still part of a tribal reservation. The historical documents underlying this decision were rediscovered only in the sense that they were being paid attention to in new ways. And we talk with Matthew about the kinds of social change and activism that allow archival arguments to speak to new possibilities today.
2: Uh, One thing that really interests us about this particular question and about the universities and slavery movement more generally is because it has such a stark Connection between archival research and social movements Uh, seems really special and an amazing opportunity to think about the political uh, relevance of archives and research in a very immediate way. Well, we are really pleased today to uh, be sitting with uh, Matthew Quallen remotely over uh, Zencastr and and talking about his role and his experiences as an undergraduate at Georgetown University in the very early moments of the Georgetown and uh, slavery and reparative uh, justice movement. Uh, Matthew, I'd love for you to just tell us when you arrived at, at Georgetown and um, what your vision was for your uh, undergraduate life and, and whether or not this role that you adopted was um, totally unexpected or, or part of how you saw yourself going into college.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and thank you for having me again. Uh, but I, I arrived in Georgetown in 2012, uh, and I, I did not expect any any of what happened or, or what I became involved with or, or what did I ended up doing. Uh, it's, that was probably a mistake. Uh, I had done some local history work in my hometown and, and really enjoyed it, uh, but it had never struck me that that this was something important that I would that I would carry with me. Uh, instead, I actually I actually applied to be an international political economy major. Uh, and I, I I thought that's, you know, that was going to take up all my time, uh, you know, that I was going to go be an economist at some international institution in, in D.C. Uh, but uh, the, the university has an extremely onerous set of core requirements, uh, including quite a few in history. Uh, and I had, I had met most of the econ requirements uh, in high school because I thought that's what I was going to do. Uh, so I got to Georgetown, and I, I started taking all these history classes, uh, and I was, I was really enjoying myself. I, I think there are sort of two things that that brought me to this, or maybe three, actually. Uh, at least one of them uh, is that I was, I was looking for something to do the, the summer after my freshman year. Uh, and so I, I went home, uh, and I worked for a local museum. Uh, it's, it's a place called the Stanley Whitman House. Uh, at the time, the director was a, a woman named Lisa, and she was absolutely fabulous. And she was sort of in, in the business uh, of trying to do some subaltern history uh, in Farmington, Connecticut, my, my sort of Puritan uh, steeple town, founded in 1642 uh, that, that I come from. And she had a, a set of volunteers, uh, each of whom she asked to, to do different tasks. And mine was to go into the probate records of the town. Uh, Farmington is is fortunate in that it never had a records fire, uh, unlike almost all of these other really old towns. And and so you could go and you could read the probate records right from the beginning of the town. Uh, And my job was to find evidence of slave ownership in the colonial town, uh, because of course Connecticut abolished slavery before many other parts of the nation, uh, but that doesn't mean that there there wasn't this long history before that. So that that really got me hooked, sort of finding finding evidence in in a place that i had very much been taught was was abolitionist was progressive was was all of these you know wonderful reconstructed things uh and, and to see oh you know there's this there's this really serious blot uh and it's it's important because uh, the story that we tell is really different and doesn't recognize that and, and sort of lets our, our uh, lets our town pat itself on the back so that was that was sort of one one stream of of realizing that you know, actually, I was I was interested in sort of interrogating the history of the places that I associated myself. Uh, the second uh, was that I came out as gay. Uh, and I I think I found myself increasingly frustrated with Georgetown in that respect. Uh, you know, Georgetown is among Catholic schools. I, I don't I don't want to badmouth the school. It's it's a great place to, to be out and, and to be queer. Uh, but that's not really its history. Uh, LGBT students had really struggled. In the early 2000s, there were there were a series of beatings, of, uh, of terrible targeted attacks. There was this enormous student movement, uh, and there had been this protracted lawsuit in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, the university had sort of neglected its students with HIV and AIDS, uh, and so I, I, I had these sorts of streams of, of reasons to be to be skeptical and to be interested in, in the history of the place, and. Add to all of that this this man named John Glavin, uh, who's a professor of English at Georgetown, and you might call him sort of like the the dean of the faculty, at least in the sense that he he knows everything and he's been on the faculty for an extremely long time. And he ran this program called the Carroll Fellows. So this is this is the third, and I I swear the final stream. And at the end of each of these sort of introductory classes that he ran, uh, it, that lasted for for two semesters that he would do a historical tour of the university. And he very forthrightly says, uh, at one point, he says, oh, and and the darkest moment in the university's history uh, came in 1838 when the university sold 272 slaves. Uh, That was striking to me, as I assume it was to everybody, Uh, but it was particularly striking because I I sort of counted myself or I, I held myself out as as someone who's interested in these sorts of things. Uh, and and I hadn't heard about this and, and we weren't talking about this. Uh, so that's, that's sort of, that's the mindset that I came to Georgetown in. And I think those are sorts of the, the events and the, the people that really led to it changing.
2: The connections between universities and, and the history of enslavement are not, um, they're not surprising on the, on the surface of them since these were old institutions that existed in the, in the age of slavery, but they hit hard because of how we think about universities and about how um, we take so much of their history into our own sense of ourselves in so far as we choose the place that we uh, feel represents us. And, and maybe we have, we don't have all the choices in the world, but, but those choices are so laden with um, your sense of self and, and listening to you talk about, Getting to Georgetown and, and being aware of these uh, recent failings, it seemed important to you to make to make Georgetown better and that was part of your your driving purpose when you when you arrived or when you came back for your second year at the
0: point that I arrived at Georgetown, uh, the story about this this sale and and the university's involvement in slavery uh, was in a, a strange position uh, as you know I arrived in two thousand and twelve. Uh, there had been a, a bicentennial history of the university uh, in 1989, uh, and that history had talked with a reasonable degree of detail about Jesuit slaveholding. Uh, and in the years that followed, uh, there was even there was a course in the American Studies Department. There was some attention paid to this issue. Uh, but it kind of fizzled out uh, to the point that you know, a student wrote what was another expose article in 2007 so at the point that I arrived, this, this wasn't a secret. Uh, people had done a fair amount of the historical work, but it also was in no way part of the conversation uh, in that there were these two prominent buildings, uh, one of which was about to become a, a student residence. Right, Students were going to have to live in, in a building named for the man who was really the architect uh, of the sale of these 272 people. Uh, and that, that was, I think, what bugged me in particular, uh, was that it seemed that, at that particular time, uh, the university should have been aware and should have been paying attention to the fact that uh, it, it had a chance to to do something about these names, and it had a, a plausible moment to consider it, uh, which was that the building is is being reopened, rechristened, put to a new purpose. Um, now, in terms of in terms of going into the archive uh, and and where that sort of impulse came from. Uh, I think part of it was that in in all of the the local history I had done, uh, I I had always been particularly interested, and in, and and the queer history I think makes this especially clear, uh, in talking to people who are involved, uh, and and the idea that that people right having characters in your story uh, makes it more compelling, relatable, uh, helps you to understand the human stakes, and that's uh, especially dramatic when you have. Right, 272 people who, in, in all of the published sources, were more or less anonymous. I I also became aware, just by looking at the work that had been done, uh, that it was clear that there was a big archive on this, uh, that the, the Maryland Jesuits, uh, which the Maryland Jesuits, in terms of their jurisdiction, actually, it was most of the country uh, for strange historical reasons, uh, and that they had a very extensive archive. It was housed at Georgetown Special Collections, and that it clearly included boxes and boxes from the period of the sale that discussed it extensively. Uh, so I, I wanted to review those documents. Uh, it, it wasn't hard to, to do as a student at the school. Uh, and I had, I had, as I mentioned, done some of this work before.
1: So you'd done some work in the Farmington archives. And this this must have made you more comfortable as an undergraduate going in and requesting boxes and of knowing what to look for, but I still wonder what gave you a sense that that this would be an effective form of argumentation for an article to make in the student newspaper?
0: Yeah, I, I, and I, I realize that's kind of a strange thing to do, uh, but I think I think the way that the archives speak through the article uh, is not is not in the sense that's sort of self conscious about them being archives uh, what i what I was really looking for is is things like names uh, uh, details stories uh, to to understand sort of the way in which this sale actually transpired uh, because the details that that come out of the archives at least in that first article uh, are ultimately all about the sale uh, they're they're the names and ages of people who were sold, particularly children, uh, I I think I highlighted in the article. Uh, They're the actions of of Thomas Milady. Uh, They're sort of the the fear and fright that accompanied that day in 1838 uh, when these people were literally rounded up and and sold down the river. Uh, And that the things that impressed people enough to record them in writing, uh, particularly given that this was the the shape of this archive, uh, a lot of it was fairly, you know, there were letters. A lot of it was fairly epistolary. um, There were there were diaries uh, there were there were the types of sources that you would expect to have emotional content uh, it wasn't just account books and and ledgers and the sorts of things that you might use to to reconstruct um, to reconstruct a, a story where you're going to have to do a lot of imagination work I, I think these were archives that were capable of speaking on their own
1: well i And I think both parts of the archive seem to have been important. The account books have been important for concretizing the financial importance to Georgetown of the sale of enslaved people and profiting from the labor of enslaved people. But uh, the, the other ways in which the archive speak have lent themselves to such powerful stories and well, I, I wanted to note, yeah, how much you quote from the archives. In your first article, you actually quote Milady himself, who reflected that he he was somewhat aware that the sale would tarnish his legacy and and yet went ahead with it anyway. Um, and you also quote a contemporary Jesuit who decried the sale. And then in a, a 2015 article, Tracing the diaspora of enslaved people from Georgetown to St. Louis, you give a detailed picture of one particular journey. A group of Jesuits and enslaved people who traveled 800 miles overland to found what would become St. Louis University. And I'm wondering what specific documents you drew on to learn the details of this, because it is a very rich and harrowing portrait, um, describing the wagons that they traveled in, the plantation cabin that one family lived in when they arrived, and their daily routines. It's very it's very visceral, um, and it also documents the important um the important national stretch of the Jesuits and slavery. So could you talk about some of the specific documents you drew on to write that piece?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that was, I, I, I thought that was a really important piece in as far as I think it's, it's the story, the story of what happened in 1838 uh, is, is so remarkable and and so dramatic and sort of, so obviously compelling uh, that it's it's really difficult to to talk about a lot of the rest of the story at Georgetown which which is really important uh, this is this is one threat uh, which is that across the 1830s uh, people in Maryland and Virginia were very much in the business of selling slaves to the deep south but when it, when it comes to the diaspora story uh, the document that really set it off uh, is is one of the ones that you Referenced at this this plantation cabin uh, at St. Louis University, uh, I had been to a to a conference at, at Slu at SLU, and one of their one of their main campus buildings uh, was I, I want to say it's Father Verhegan, uh, who, who is the um, uh, who is being addressed in this letter, uh, and one of their main campus buildings is named for this man. He's one of the presidents from the founding period of the university. Uh, and in the middle of the Maryland Jesuit archives, uh, there was this astonishing letter, uh, and it is it is signed and written in the name of one of the Jesuit-owned slaves. Uh, I, I don't know if he if he wrote it himself or if it was prepared by you know, a Jesuit who was attempting to be his advocate. Uh, so there was this sort of mystery about the possibility of internal conflict that came with it. Uh, but it's this uh, astonishing, plaintive, desperate document. Uh, where he says to Father Verhegan, uh, "My my wife and I are going to freeze to death in this cabin uh, if you don't improve our, our our living situation over the course of the winter." Um, and and I believe he also he wants to to buy his freedom. Uh, he proposes a scheme. Uh, he says, "I can I can get access to the money. I, I can I can buy my way out of this this terrible situation." Uh, I, I don't know what happened to him. Uh, only one half of the letter lives in the archive. Uh, but that was—it was just sort of this this document that was, it was too striking not to investigate further. An important piece of this as well, uh, and part of the reason that I, I wanted to work with that document and tell a little bit of that story, uh, is is the national context, uh, which is that you know as as we know now, sort of the the really critical the critical moment in, a, in our current uh, dialogue about racial justice is the is the murder of George Floyd and the the trial of, of Derek Chauvin. Uh, but then it was, it was the death of Michael Brown. Uh, and, of course, the death of Michael Brown took place in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, which is a suburb uh, northwest of St. Louis, uh, actually right about the place where Slough was founded. Slough is now in the city, uh, but, it, but it wasn't then. Uh, and the Jesuit plantation that supported Slough was a place called Florissant Farm. Uh, And as you may know, Florissant Avenue is is where almost all of these protests took place uh, in in the Michael Brown moment. Uh, So on on the one hand, I I wanted to work with these documents because they had such a deep connection to the present. That Jesuit slaves had had not just been taken from Maryland and Georgetown to the deep south, uh, but also had been taken to Ferguson and and Florissant and and to St. Louis. Um, But, but, So, so that was, that was sort of one of the the key documents uh, that I worked with. Um, There were a number of others describing uh, individual sales uh, within the the Jesuit archives. You know, you would talk about five people, 20 people, uh, all all kinds of, of, of moments in which enslaved people were, were sold or, or were sent uh, to Jesuit institutions across the country, as well as just to, to enslavers to raise money for the university. Uh, Now, not all of this is is sort of straight from the Jesuit archives uh, to a fair degree when i when i tried to understand what that journey would have been like uh, I, there were there were documents that described it in sort of very bare detail uh, and so i was i was just able to draw on the fact that there's enormous historical scholarship around the issue of slavery in the united states and what that article really reconstructs is well i know i know that these people took this journey uh, I know a, a few details about it from the archives. Uh, how can how can we fill it in with the scholarship? Uh, and the scholarship tells you about these the roads that that people were forced to march over, the sorts of conditions uh, that would that would accompany slaves who were marched across the country, uh, and and so it's a it's a fusion, I, I suppose.
1: I wanted to ask you what was the reaction to your articles on campus. Did students immediately find it? Um, yeah, I guess. How much reaction was there on campus? Did you see it grow as as you published? I guess how many did you publish? Five or six articles? Were there other events that kind of helped the momentum for reparative justice get going? I mean, I guess the the sort of the the dream of a social justice-informed piece of public writing is that you will write this article and people will see the importance of the argument that you're making and just immediately take it up and start moving forward. Yeah, what did, what, what did you see happen? And, and um, can you trace the kind of growing momentum that was happening on campus?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, can, I can tell a piece of that story. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure, I'm, I'm glad you're talking to other people who are undergrads as well. Uh, because an important part of this story is that like Georgetown really does have a, a strong tradition of student activism uh, and there are all these students who very successfully uh, managed to mobilize themselves uh, and I don't think that was you know I, I I published this article and and two weeks later you know people are are pounding the pavement uh, I, I think I think people did realize uh, in response to the article I, I know I know that students read it um, I heard from students who were, who were upset about it. I know that it made its way into the university administration. Uh, and I know that in part in response to the article, uh, that administrators were, were thinking about the fact that they were going to need to, to do something about this question, right? That they were going to need to resolve it. Not necessarily in, in the way that, that I advocated for it, but that this had sort of entered the conversation. But the timeline here is 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 important because I, I think I published that article, the fall of 2014 is, is the first article uh, saying the name should be changed. Uh, the renovation was ongoing for a significant period of time as, as university construction often is. Uh, and by the summer of 2015, uh, as, as the buildings were preparing to be opened that fall and, and students were going to move into them, uh, there hadn't been a, a university move to, to talk about the names, to open the possibility of renaming. So there was no immediate mobilized reaction other than students and administrators sort of seeing that this was coming down the pipeline uh, and entering the conversation. I, I can't tell you exactly what sort of other student activism sort of accelerated the timetable. Uh, I, think, I think sort of what became the critical focal point uh, is that, at the end of the summer, the president's office announced that it was going to be forming a, a working group on slavery, memory, and reconciliation. And at that point, there was sort of there was sort of a, a body or a process that I think really crystallized student attention, uh, and that I think invited the ability to make demands. And so I think now now there was also a process that it could attach to. Uh, I, I also think the heat was turning up nationwide. Uh, the the Black Lives Matter movement was was gathering steam uh, students were increasingly plugged into this uh, and so I think the frustration that that students felt not only it, it's sort of the fact that the university seemed to be moving a little slow but also that that these conversations were now plugged into national conversations really helped gather steam uh, and I, I of course wrote more articles this is a it was a really complicated story I, I got something like like a thousand words every two weeks uh, and that's not. That's, that's not what you need to talk about, the relationship between a university that was founded in the 1780s uh, and supported by slavery uh, and racism in the United States. Uh, that's, that's just not uh, how that sort of a story gets told, uh, at least not, not in the fullness that it deserves.
1: Did you have any immediate reaction sort of among your peers or in the classroom, um, like any sort of more, more personal reaction in your circle? Of peers? You know,
0: I think Yale, Yale hadn't done Calhoun. Uh, a lot of universities were not engaged in this sort of work or these processes yet. So I think this was in a moment where there was an awful lot of skepticism. And I think Georgetown has a fairly conservative past, uh, you know, alumni base. Uh, readership of the student newspaper online uh, can actually be, you know, I got, I got a lot of nasty comments uh, on these articles, not, not sent to my email.
1: But, they know. had the comment section turned on.
0: They did, they did. In fact, I think there was a, one that has stood out to me for some period of time, uh, is that somebody commented, uh, Matthew Cullen is far more racist than the people he condemns. And I sort of said, well, you know, I, it's, it's one thing to think that, but the people we're talking about are, are slaveholders and slave traders. Uh, so people, uh, there there was there was a negative reaction. Uh, there were a lot of students who, I didn't really hear, you know, sort of, personal reflections. Uh, And I I, I imagine that this probably uh, is the sort of conversation that was happening more deeply within the activist community. Uh, I think the role that I played was relatively circumscribed and and specific, uh, which is that I I, I told stories, I I laid out arguments, uh, I sort of pointed to elements of history that I think very much offered ammunition, legitimacy, uh, direction to to social movements. But I, I, I can't pretend that that, you know i was at I was at the helm of those things uh, so I, I I think that other students will be able to reflect on on things like that more specifically uh, but i did I did hear from a number of students just sort of right who saw the article who were who were surprised, who were interested shortly after it was published to the point where I can say, yeah, yeah people read this one.
1: well, it's just such an interesting moment where you're right that it was it was somewhat people talk about generations being. Compressed now, so that four years makes a generation, and the the sort of middle ground of conversation around reparations has changed so much in the last ten years. And I do think that having this conversation on Georgetown's campus, Georgetown is not um, a particularly radical place, Uh, and to see it go from something that was a kind of open secret—people knew about it, but it wasn't talked about—and that is one of the mysteries that it it existed there, it was there, it was even digitized. So why, why did it explode into this national and international story? We have sort of asked various people involved about their reflections as to why this moment in time was the moment when the archive went from something that was used in American studies classes to something that's written about in the International Herald Tribune. And I think that you're sort of getting at that with the timing of history and how how the shooting of Michael Brown, how the activism in Ferguson, how BLM seems like it created a context for this archive to be ignited and to move conversations forward. Can you just talk a little bit about, I guess, how it felt to be in, in the midst of what feels like visible social change. Social change usually happens like so slowly that you don't get to see it. But um, at Georgetown, it feels like it was accelerated so that you could see the discussions happening that had maybe been building through scholarship, through efforts to deal with archive for a hundred years, but had just never really bubbled to the surface.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was it was completely astonishing. I, I, I think I think I think the answer has to be. Uh, you know the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and, and the place of of race in our national dialogue. I, I, I really, I, I don't I don't think there's there's another movement that was having that sort of impact on on the national psyche at that time in a way that was related to to what had the capacity to happen at Georgetown. Uh, but I, I think I think the the most astonishing moment and and the transformation and, and this is just in my time at Georgetown. Obviously, you know, between the first time that we talked and now. You had the Jesuits putting up a hundred million dollars uh, for this, uh, you know, for this a, a slightly vague uh, uh, effort, but but it's 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 an astonishing sum of money. It's 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 amazing that this is actually materializing into what seems like sort of a, a first of its kind effort. But uh, to to the way that things transformed was was really I- incredible to watch. I I think I found myself in in some respect uh going from the vanguard to sort of going to the inside of, of the institution i was i was a member of the working group uh and i remember that we thought we were moving reasonably quickly uh we internally uh, self-consciously we thought of ourselves you know like the the bill and melinda gates foundation which famously has to spend all the money uh, within a, a certain number of years after bill and melinda gates pass away right they they understand that their their mission is not forever they, they have to do their job, uh, and that at some point it has to end. Uh, and so we, I think, thought that we're going to take one school year to do this. And that's, that's lightning speed uh, in university time. And by November, uh, there were student protests uh, on, on, on Red Square, it's called, which is this big, big brick plaza where a lot of student activism is centered. Uh, you know, there, were, there was an occupation of the president's office uh, of the university and you know the President's chief of staff was coming to us and saying, "Can we have a decision on the name That was at least for me that was a a really remarkable thing was to see the movement had had moved with, with such speed, had gathered such force, uh, and was convicted of its ideas uh, that that at the end, I sort of felt like man i I'm one of the slowpokes here." Now, I, I think one one force that I'd, I'd really like to comment on, sort of being unleashed here, that is really incredible, and and that also speaks tremendously to what sort of power is actually latent in archives, is the descendants. Uh, I, I think that was that was something that that we really didn't see coming. I didn't see coming. I don't think the working group saw it coming. Uh, I remember uh, Adam Rothman, who's a wonderful professor, a professor of history, and, and a member of the working group. Uh, had identified, you know, one or two people, uh, maybe halfway through the year, uh, that he thought could be descendants of the 272 people who were were sold. Uh, As it turned out, uh, there was a lawyer who had hired uh, genealogists uh, and had started to sort of build this this infrastructure for identifying descendants uh, that was only possible because of real quirks of of this archive. Uh, One, uh, that there was extensive documentation of the sale. We knew everybody's names and ages uh, when they were sold in 1838. Uh, Two, that there was not so much time before the census started counting formerly enslaved people that you could pick up with sort of the ordinary tools of genealogy. Uh, Because most most people have a really hard time uh, tracing their genealogy uh, once you hit people who are enslaved because they they weren't counted, they weren't reckoned, they weren't written about uh, like other people. And the, the real quirk of the Jesuit archive uh, was actually Catholicism. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned, I mentioned the, or, or I, I wrote about, and you, you mentioned earlier, uh, the contracts, the, the provisos, the idea that people needed to be able to continue to practice in the Catholic faith, and that this was very important to the Jesuits. Well, a lot of those provisos were, were broken, and to a great degree, this wasn't honored. Uh, but something that, that did at least predate the sale, and that allowed sort of the construction of, of an understanding of who was related, of, of family units, of you know the building blocks of genealogy. It was actually all, all of the sacramental records. There were records of, of baptisms, uh, of communions, of marriages, uh, of funerals, uh, and so uh, the archive was really what uh, you know. Very particular things about this archive, uh, to a large degree, are what made. You know, unleashing this descendant community, which now numbers in the thousands, uh, I, or at least which now has been recognized to include thousands of people. I, I suppose it always numbered in the, the thousands, tens of thousands, maybe more. Um, it, it's just not possible if you don't if you don't have the records. Uh, and so, in in this way, it's it's kind of funny that I, I think the archive. I know there was tension between the descendant community and, and special collections and things like that, just because you know, special collections has rules about you—you got to request things in advance, right? They're they're not stored on site. In the case of the Jesuit archives, uh, I think at least for a while they were they were actually still owned by the Jesuits, and so you needed to get permission to use them. Uh, and, and these this caused a lot of friction uh, with people who would show up at Georgetown and would say, "I'm I'm descended from." these people who were enslaved by the Jesuits who ran this university, uh, and I want to see the documents, right? I want to I use these archives as a tool of self-realization. So there, there still was that tension, uh, I think, between you know, archives professionals and, and sort of academics who are used to working with archives in a particular way uh, and, and the public who is not used to having to access materials that way. But at the same time, uh, I mean, you now see what, what the, the Jesuits have had to do, what the university has had to do, reckon, to, to reckon with and to, to negotiate with, to, to recognize, to come into conversation with this community that can only be brought into being because we have the archive. Uh, so it, it has this really amazing, uh, I think, latent power uh, that is maybe more obvious in the context of, of lineage, but which is always at least metaphorically operating through the concept of lineage.
1: What were some of the suggestions that the working group made that most excited you, that you were most in support of? Um, it
0: was kind of, it was an interesting document. Uh, uh, the working group issued a report uh, over the summer uh, after, after its sort of 10-month existence. Uh, and it's interesting because, of course, the, the report ended with recommendations, some of which had already been implemented, right? We, we cataloged recommendations that had been done, like like renaming the buildings. Uh, we made recommendations that were, uh, I, I think, were were flawed in some ways, but were at the time quite radical, uh, like offering you know, offering special admission status uh, to to descendants, um, you know, recommending the creation of of scholarships, memorialization efforts. Uh, so, you know, I, I I still don't think there's a memorial. The university has not implemented all of our recommendations. Um, I think we felt constrained in some ways as sort of an uh, arm of the university, um, as it were. You know, we couldn't recommend things that we didn't think the university could do. In a way that activists, well, they can demand things, whether or not uh, the university uh, is is willing to implement them. And, and in that way, I think they can shift the needle and push the conversation a lot further and harder than a working group could. I, I think the recommendation of um, of actually of, of admission status, which you know, it has this real, this real paucity in, in retrospect. Uh, but at the time, it was actually really radical. Um, I, I think a ton of Coates actually commented and he said, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't really what we're talking about, but this is, this is a type of reparations. Uh, and that that's, that's a really, that's a new thing uh, for an American university to try. So I, I think that was really exciting. But I, I, I think we were always aware. And our role was not to end the conversation, right? Most of the report is not here are our recommendations. The report is something like a like 120 pages. Uh, and of that, probably 80% is here's what we did and here's the history. Um it's 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 supposed to be laying the groundwork for movements that are going to take over uh, because I think we recognize that. We were sort of an ad hoc group of people from within the university uh, who were representative in some ways, but not others. Uh, For instance, right, descendants were not represented on our group, Uh, but they're obviously an extremely important constituency in terms of what the university has to think about and what it has to do.
1: I know you weren't on campus when the voting around the activity fee happened, but I'm curious what your perception was about how consensus was built around that. Because it was a remarkable number of Georgetown students who both showed up to vote and voted in favor of it. Can, what can you say about the development of this movement, and 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 then also, what do you think is preventing it from being enacted?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was it was by no means a close vote, uh, which is really incredible. I, I think I think if that vote had been held, you know, uh, in two thousand and you know, even in the spring of two thousand and sixteen as as I was leaving uh, i'm I'm not sure it would have passed. it at least would have been razor thin. If it had happened in two thousand and twelve when I had arrived, uh, people would have said, "What are you talking about?" right No, they either wouldn't have shown up or they would have voted no. Uh, so it's it's an incredible transformation in an extremely short period of time. and what what you're pointing at is 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 these sorts of many streams that that come together to make these things work. Uh, you know I, I think I my function was largely to get information out there, to, to tell a story from the archives that could be persuasive, and that was, that was true uh, and was supported by evidence. Uh, right? So I think, for instance, the, um, uh, the relationship between uh, slavery and the financing of the university, the fact that from the beginning, uh, right, there's Jesuit documents in the 1780s uh, that suggest that the point of, of them having enslaved People uh, is to be able to support the operations of the university, of the province, et cetera, and so on. Uh, and so, you know, on the one hand, you need the information, but on the other hand, as 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 we discussed, that information was lying fallow for so many years. Uh, right in the in the eighties, in two thousand and seven, this big piece, uh, I, I think, in the Georgetown Voice. Uh, so it's 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 really. It's really got to be the case that it's it's the social movements that are that are changing the culture, uh, and that are making it so that so that um, uh, these sorts of archival arguments can appeal to new possibilities. Uh, I, I think there's there's actually something that I've been working on in in my own time. Uh, there was this incredible uh, case at the Supreme Court last year. Uh, it's called McGirt versus Oklahoma, uh, and the outcome of the case uh, was recognizing that. Probably about half of Oklahoma is in unextinguished uh, tribal reservation. Now, what's, what's weird about the case uh, is that all the history that it relies on took place between 1830 uh, and 1905. right? Why was this case decided in 2020? The history was, was known in the sense that it was in an archive, that it was maybe in a publication somewhere, that it was accessible. But large numbers of people had to work for a very long time in order to change the culture so that the history could be taken seriously and so that its persuasive value could actually be recognized as related to potential outcomes in a dialogue. Uh, So I I would, would, you know, just thinking about those kind of first principles, lay the credit at the feet of student activists. Uh, I would also lay it at the feet of, of national activists because it's reasonably clear that you know, just as just as the conversation at Georgetown was transforming in the context of of the early Black Lives Matter movement and and the murder of Michael Brown, it, it surely has to be the case that it's transforming further uh, in, in the context of that sort of mature movement and I think a much deeper national reckoning. Uh, the second half of your question, though, is why hasn't the student activity fee been been implemented? It's obvious that the the university's uh, sort of governing bodies are uncomfortable with this proposal. It's a situation where, like, yes, students students are the vanguard here, uh, and and the governing bodies are, are are very conservative. I think sort of the the short lifespan uh, of students allows them to really transform in their time at a university. Uh, I, I think I think they've just come up against institutions that are that are much more stable uh, and that are probably. Quite a few years behind uh, in terms of endorsing this sort of a transformation. Uh, I don't. I don't know as much as I should about the makeup of those governing bodies, uh, but I assume that you know they're they're probably older, uh, whiter, wealthier, more male, more conservative uh, than the, the current student body.
1: So now you're studying the law, and with your mention of the case in Oklahoma, uh, I, I believe the Cherokee Nation. You've highlighted the intersection between the law and archives. And just to end, I wonder what you will take forward from the movement for reparative justice at Georgetown, your work in the archive, your parsing of these very legalistic documents which treat people as assets, and your current path, finishing law school and, and looking forward.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, it was it was a pretty overwhelming experience, uh, and I, I think maybe the easiest answer is that I've, I've continued to do fairly similar work in other places. You know, so at, at at Yale, where I'm a law student now, I, I did a fair amount of research on, on that law school's ties to the Confederacy, and you know, lo and behold, they're they're deeper than people realized. Uh, you know, there were many students from the Deep South. There were many students who became involved in the Confederacy uh, who. You know, were participants in um, uh, secession conventions across the country, who became generals in the Confederate Army, uh, who owned slaves, who were planters. Uh, so I think I think part of the answer is that you know it's a reminder that the the national story is always much more complicated, and also that it truly is a national story. Uh, you know, I think. Washington D.C. and Alexandria, Virginia, in particular, was actually one of the slave trading capitals of the United States. It was, uh, along with you know, New Orleans and and, and Mobile, I, I think it was actually the largest slave trading port uh, in for a, a number of decades uh, in the United States. Which is not really how people think of Washington D.C. Uh, they don't think of it as sort of a you know a former cradle of of Atlantic slavery, but but it is, uh, and so. I guess a, a piece of this is that these conversations really are national, uh, that no one really has their their hands clean in this enterprise. That that you know, a place like Yale demonstrates that there was enormous interchange between the North and the South even after slavery moved south, uh, right? That sure, New England merchants were often abolitionists, uh, but they were also uh, really successful at spinning southern cotton and selling it to the world. And so it's it's certainly a a reminder of sort of a, the complexity and, and sort of the national nature of all this, uh, but to, to get a little more to the point that I think you're you're driving at with respect to you know, some of the comments I've made about history and, and law and the relationship between past and present, I think the the view that I'm coming around to uh, is that you know, history is uh, it's it's things that happen in the past, but it's it's also the way that the present is acting on the past and, and and vice versa. It's one thing to to find things in the archives. It's it's one thing for them to be written down, uh, but it's totally another thing for those things to be uh, capable of speaking uh, in a given culture or persuasive. Uh, so someone like me can can write about what happened in eighteen thirty eight. Can write about uh, you know the sale of, of enslaved people from. Uh, from Washington to to St. Louis, uh, can can write about all of these these terrible things that happened. Uh, you know, an enterprising young lawyer uh, can point out that uh, in the 1850s there were treaties signed with the with the Cherokee, uh, guaranteeing them uh, land in Oklahoma. You know, for for time immemorial. Uh, but in, until you have activists on the ground, until you have a culture that's ready. Uh, to hear those stories and to work them into a way that's going to be persuasive uh, and is going to be important, right? To, to take seriously the relationship between that past and, and this present, uh, it's, it's not surprising that the archives are going to lie fallow, but you know, that's also their power. You know, they'll, they'll last a long time. Uh, if we have to wait a long time for, for the right culture, the right social movement, the, the archives will still be there.
1: Thank you so much, Matthew, for your time today.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me again.